So as you know, we are spending a few weeks looking at the Psalms in order to prepare us for going through a series on the reason why we participate in covenant renewal worship. And of course, the Psalms have a very wonderful way of, for us, laying us that foundation, but reminding us of the wonderful truths that we should hang on to more often than what we do. Uh, This morning, as we turn to Psalm 116, if you're able to do that, um, I'd like us to be able to walk through a few observations. And the reason being is because um, it's very, very hard to listen to someone who is figuring out what they want to say as they're saying it. And of course, you know, sometimes you have to tell children, first figure out what you're going to say and then start speaking. And of course, this is even worse when pastors do it. It's like as if they're working out what their sermon should be as they're preaching it. Now, Psalm 116 almost falls into that category. It is a man who is proclaiming so much all at once that it's hard to figure out what he's doing. So I would like us, if we can this morning, to pay particular attention to the verses of Psalm 116 as we read it together this morning. So now hear God's word in Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me, the pangs of Sheol lay hold on me, I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, and our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosened my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in the midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we would ask, as we always do, that you would bring clarity to our minds, uh, always with the aim that our hearts would change, and that our lives would be filled with love and praise for you. Help us to understand your words to us this morning, that we may take them as our own and live in the light of them. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the reasons I find Psalm 116 a little tricky 
is because the man is speaking a great deal about a great deal of things. He speaks uh, as in terms of a declaration, then he has to speak to his own soul, telling his own soul to return to rest, because we all know when we have to speak to ourselves, we may even say things like, oh, don't be silly, I'm, I'm taking this too seriously, or I'm not taking this seriously enough. And you have to bring yourself under control by speaking to yourself. Now, this is not unusual because the very first psalm, Psalm 1, uh, the word to meditate on the word day and night actually means to speak the word of God to yourself. It means to whisper the word of God to yourself, to speak to your own soul so that you would bring yourself under the word of the Lord. And so this is what we find in this psalm in part, but we also find a tension. And that is the man loves the Lord, but then he is now wrestling with the question of what that love looks like. How will I love the Lord my God? Now we know as Christians that our love for God is a response to God's love for us. But if we pause and ask the question, how has God loved you? The default answer of many of us would be because Christ died on the cross. And that would clearly be a correct answer, but it's not the only answer. Because God has loved you in numerous ways that you would very much like to perhaps spend time to draw your attention to. Think of how many times the Lord has answered your prayer and you have experienced God's love as an answer to prayer. Think of how many times you have experienced God's mercy and have been kept from danger or potential harm and you recognize that this is God's doing and therefore your love just, just flows out because you are attributing your safety to God. And so you begin to realize over and over again in multiple ways that the more that you recognize that God does for you, the more you recognize that your love is then a response to what God has done. And so clearly, we love God because he first loved us. It's clearly a case that our heart has been changed in union with Christ. But I don't want you to rob God of all the other ways that he loves you because you belong to Christ, because you have faith in him. I want you to be able to see them this morning. I want you to be able to recognize that you love God. But now you are left with attention in the same way I am. What do I give to the Lord to demonstrate my love for him? Now it is true that I can only love God because he first loves me. But what is my response of love to God? And in many ways, this is exactly the very thing that this man is somewhat wrestling with. Or to put it another way, if we backtrack one step, how do you know that you are being loved by God? How do you know you're being loved by God today? And how do you know that you have been loved by God this week? And of course, if you're not mindful of how you have been loved by God this week, it then becomes almost quite difficult to render love back to God appropriately, to render back praise to God because love is a response to God's love for you. And of course, if you're not recognizing it daily, then it follows that you're not returning that love daily. 
If you're not recognizing it weekly, it follows that you're not then returning it weekly. Now, of course, you can always say, I love God because he gave his son for me. And that's true. I'm not trying to rob that truth. I'm just trying to say there's multiple other ways where we need to question, how has God loved me today? And as you begin to just meditate and recognize what God has done, it springs forth new love for God because it is always a response to what God has first done for us. So how do you love God? Well, one of the ways that you love God is by recognizing God's love for you. Well, how do you recognize God's love for you? The cross, obviously. But what other ways do you recognize this as the love of God? And then following that, what should my response be? And so most Christians, in fact, all Christians here, I'm sure, are aware that we love God responsively. That is, it is to be both responsible, we are taking responsibility, but we love God because he first loved us. And that is reflected here in this psalm. But here it's not referring to Christ, strictly speaking, in terms of his death on the cross. Here it is referring to God in answering the prayer of the man praying. This man loves God because he has experienced God's love in having his prayer answered. Same principle, but he is recognizing that his love for God is springing from a heart that is recognized God has answered his prayer. And what that means is this, that when life uh, contains trouble and that trouble becomes personal, the love of God is almost personalized. Okay, so when life contains trouble and you experience that trouble personally, the love of God is then recognized personally. God is loving you. It is true that God loves, but now you're recognizing that God is loving you. Several years ago, there was a minister by the name of Sangster, and he had to take a lady aside who frequently sung in the choir. And she would sing in the choir, and there would be numerous troubles in the church in the terms of what people went through just after the Second World War, even during the Second World War. And wives would lose their husbands, and she would continue to sing. And then another man would lose his job, and she would continue to sing. And then one day, her husband lost her job, and she never sung. And William Sangster had to come alongside her and say, look, is it only a tragedy when it happens to you? Is it only a tragedy when it happens to you? And that, of course, should not be the response. Tragedies happen to all of us. And in the body of Christ, we ought to be able to mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. And it's difficult when you don't see yourself as part of a covenant community, but you see yourself, as my illustration goes, as a bag of marbles. You're together, but not really together, where the church is much more like a bunch of grapes, where you are individuals connected to the same vine rather than a bag of marbles who just so happen to be gathered together on once on a Sunday morning. That is not who you are. You are those bunch of grapes, tender, need looking after, the fruit of God's work, 
together in Christ. And when you understand that, you begin to recognize that other people's troubles are your troubles. Other people's burdens are your burdens. And when you begin to see answers to prayer in other people's lives, you begin to recognize not only love, the love of God for them, but the love of God for all of his community. And this is what we begin to recognize, that though this man is speaking as an individual, he is recognizing a truth that belongs to each and every one of us. That we love God because he first loved us. Only when, or rather, it, that's always true, but it is recognized when you recognize how God has loved you. For the psalmist, he finds himself saying that I love God because God has answered my prayer. Now, as he goes through the rest of the psalm, as he explains himself, he, he's, he's just full of excitement. He's like a man who's, um, you know, just proposed to um, the, the, the woman, and, he, and he's thinking of the past and the present and the future all at once, that this newfound love is just overtaking him. I mean, <clears throat> you know, when you're in love, young people, and you realize that you fall in love and you're going to marry the person... Uh, all of a sudden, you, you can't think straight. And not only can you not think straight, you go off your food. You don't tend to eat. And, and the reason I know that's true, because that is exactly what happened to my wife when she met me. <laughs> I, it, it also was the other way around as well. Um, but you begin to realize that this love just captures you, and you, you just want to say everything at once. And you're not quite sure what order to put it in. And Psalm 116 tends to fall into that category. I, I just want to say everything. And I'm jumping from the past to the future to the present. And none of it seems to make any sense. But everything makes sense. Because it is an expression of my love for God. And it is an expression of my love for God because I'm just overwhelmed by God's love for me. And so he jumps past, present, future, past, present, future, not necessarily in that order, as a way of grasping and then sort of trying to repay, not in a, as a reward, but trying to pay back or demonstrate to God how he loves him, because his heart is now filled with love. Now, the reason why this question is not a straightforward question, and the reason why the answer is not a straightforward answer, which is, how do I love God, is because the one thing that is the most precious to the Lord, he cannot give. And the reason he cannot give it is because the Lord has answered his prayer. What a conundrum. What a tangle, uh, it's a bit tangled, but it is beautiful in its, complicit, uh, in its complicated state. And so let us work through the text as we go. In verse 1, you'll notice the psalm begins by raising a what and a why. The what is, I love the Lord, and the why is, because he has heard my prayer. The what, I love the Lord, the why, because he has heard my prayer. Verse 2 gives further explanation. It is because the Lord has inclined his ear to me. Again, pointing to the Lord answering his prayer, the what and the why. And his first response to this divine love 
is to continue in prayer. And I guess to continue in prayer, to give thanks and to give praise to God because he is overwhelmed. He, he wants to demonstrate to God, to God himself personally, that he loves him. But we shouldn't underestimate at this point, I think, an important truth. That one of the things that helps us to pray is answers to prayer. And one of the things that can actually discourage us from praying more is when we have had a series of prayers that seem to go unanswered. And so we begin to doubt whether or not God is listening. And we begin to doubt whether or not we're even praying in faith. And we, all of these doubts occur. And so answered prayer is almost necessary to encourage you as a believer to pray more. But it takes wisdom to recognize that God has answered your prayer, not just concrete examples. It takes a sensitive heart to recognize God is loving you and God is answering your prayer. But God does what God does in the way that he does it. An example of this is in Paul Miller's book of his young daughter he decided to take on camp and he had two daughters. One had cerebral palsy and the other one who looked after her sister a lot, he felt um, had been so busy that she just needed time on her own with her dad. So he took her camping. And during the camping, as they're setting up the tent and building the fire and collecting sticks, she had lost her glasses. And he came back to the campfire that has not yet been lit. And he says to his daughter, why are you crying? And she says, well, it doesn't matter. No, he says, please tell me, why are you crying? And she says, it doesn't matter. Why are you I've lost my glasses. And he said to his daughter, why don't we pray about it? And he began to realize at that moment, her heart becoming hard. And she said, no. He says, well, why do you not want to pray? And she says, because I've prayed for my sister who has cerebral palsy for such a long time and God has not answered me. Why would God care about my glasses? And so we all realize that we all have these measurements by which we, we, we sort of believe that God doesn't do this because he hasn't done that. Or God is not going to do this because he didn't do it for somebody else. And we lose we lose the immediacy of just how personal and immediate God is to you as an individual. That God deals with you. He does deal with you in the context of a community. But God answers you as an individual. What happens to the people around you is no reflection on your life before God. It is in a community in one sense, but not when it comes to your personal prayer life. And so here we recognize that the prayer of an individual is necessary to be answered in order to help and encourage this individual to pray more. And so I guess the exhortation would be at this point, look, please don't forget or bypass that when you've got what you have received from the Lord, don't forget it too quickly. Because remembering answered prayer is almost a necessary ingredient or motivation to pray more. And to forget the grace of God and to forget the mercy of God and to forget what God has done for you and only ever to default to the cross of Christ. And that is a big thing. But sometimes it can be pushed to the side to say, oh, I know that, but I'm not being as if that's what God did for me then. But what has he done for me lately? Well, quite a lot. 
if we only take the time to recognize what God has done. And the reason why it's necessary is because it is the motivation that God gives us and the, and the cultivation of our heart and the commitment to continue to do what we are meant to be doing, and that is coming before the Lord God in prayer. And so the arguments are greater and lesser are true, but not always true. And so it is also true that if God has answered a prayer of something big, that would he answer the prayer of something little? Or if he's not answered the prayer of something big, would he be bothered to answer the prayer of something little? This is to develop categories that God does not work by. This is to come up with uh, means by which God does not function. The, these are the way we deal with things, not the way God does. But most importantly, it is that answered prayer is normal. It is not abnormal. What is also normal is for us not to recognize just how much God has done. Answered prayer is normal, and so therefore it takes wisdom to understand how God has answered you. And so pray about everything, of course. And one of the best ways to demonstrate your relationship before God is to recognize the creature and creator distinction. God is not like you. You are not like God. And that distinction alone, when meditated upon, will allow you to see that God does not work to the same principles you do. His mind doesn't function the same way yours does. And so you pray before God in faith, knowing that you're placing every act that you have of heart, mind, and soul before God in total dependence. And then as you, in wisdom, begin to receive answers to prayer, you'll see them. And then your love of God for, will grow and you will again, like the psalmist here, continue in further prayer. The verse 3 then is a reflection on the recent past, how in time of trouble he called upon the name of the Lord to deliver his soul, verse 4, to not die at the hand of the enemy. Then in verses 5 through to 11, he is speaking of the past and the present at once, proclaiming truths concerning the character of God, the trouble that he has been rescued from, therefore recognizing what God has done for him, the result that he will now walk in the land of the living, verse 9, before the Lord. He has been kept by God. His soul has been delivered. He lives. His life has not been taken. He has been kept by God. And then verse 12 is where he begins to come to his senses and ask the question, then what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? Now at this point, the Lord your God is not asking you to pay him back. The Lord your God is not asking you to give a running count of everything God has done for you so that you can pay him back appropriately. You cannot do that. And God does not expect that from you. But there is a response that comes with love. That when God loves you, you in return love him. That we love God because he first loved us. And so what should that response of love actually look like? We know that we're going to love God, but what does that look like to love God? We can say forever and a day that we love God because he first loved us. Okay, but what does that love for God look like? How do you love God? 
How is that love of God recognized? Where is that love of God recognized? Are they, it, are they just words? Or is it recognized in a way of life? Faithfulness, commitment, praise, and honor to the Lord your God. This is what quest, the question in verse 12 is raising. How are you loving God? What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? He's not trying to pay God back for his kindness, but it's a question that is important because the one thing that is precious to the Lord, it is the one thing that he cannot give. So notice this carefully. The question that he raises in verse 12 is a response. It is a response to the Lord's love for him. And then he moves into the I will language of verse 14 and verse 18. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. And so why has he come to that conclusion? And of everything else he could give to the Lord, why is he giving that to the Lord? And he knows that this is the only thing he can do because his soul has been delivered. This is the only thing that he can do because he now walks in the land of the living. He knows, verse 15, that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. But he cannot give this to God. And the reason he cannot give this to God is because God has answered his prayer. He knows that the thing that the Lord would want the most is my life with him. Even Paul says it, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Better to be with the Lord than it is here, but more advantageous to you if I stay. So now we begin to recognize that the precious thing that the Lord wants is us. And he recognized that this is the one thing that he cannot give to the Lord. And the reason he cannot give it is because the Lord has answered his prayer, protecting him from the enemies. He's kept him alive. So what is he now to do with the life that he has been given by God? And so this is where verse 14 and verse 18 comes in. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And the reason why that conclusion is arrived at is because he looks at what is precious, realizes he cannot give that because the Lord has answered his prayer, and therefore must arrive at a different conclusion of what is it that I can give to the Lord. And the conclusion he comes to is praise. But not just personal praise. This is going to be a praise of witness to the people around me. I am going to demonstrate my love to God in answered prayer, not on my own private prayer meeting, but I'm going to do this in the presence of all of God's people, and I'm going to praise him. Why? Because what is the one reason God always keeps his remnant behind? What is the one reason why God kept us here rather than taking us to himself when we got saved? It is so that we could be a witness to all nations. And so now you begin to realize it makes perfect sense. The reason why this man is here and he's going to praise the Lord in the presence of all his people is because the witness of God's love is not only magnified in an individual, it then spreads throughout all others in the congregation of God's people. Now we begin to see how the relationship between an individual and the congregation works when it comes to praying, how the relationship between recognize what God has done for you personally then affects the congregation as you praise God publicly. 
And this is what we begin to recognize in this psalm. And so let me just raise one point before we bring it to a conclusion. It's this, that we are kept by God. We are always kept by God. And last week I raised the important truth that is often forgotten. And that is, in order to truly understand, in order to truly appreciate, in order to truly love God in his covenant fullness, then you must recognize that what Christ did, he did for you. It must be a very personal recognition that, yes, Christ died for a number that no man can number. Read Revelation. We don't know how many, how many thousands upon thousands Christ has saved. But what we do know is we can never number them. But what is important is whether you recognize that what Christ did, he did for you. What is your personal response? Do you ever ask the question, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? Has the love of God reached you personally in the covenant that you participate in, that you live, that you belong to? And so this is a covenantal truth, that what God has done, he has done for you. And when you understand the for you part, you then begin to recognize why these questions emerge. What can I render to the Lord for all of his benefits for me? I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. I will do this. I will do it before everyone else because I'm recognizing that what God has done, he has done for me. And so when life becomes a time of trouble and that trouble becomes personal, then God's love is recognized personally in multiple ways, including, as it is here, in answers to prayer. It is true all the time, in all circumstances, both good and bad. And it leads to the question, how am I going to love God? Not pay him back, but how am I going to love God? I know God has loved me first. And I know that my love for God is a response of his love for me. But how am I going to demonstrate my love to God? And the man arrives at the conclusion that the one thing that the Lord is, finds the most precious is the one thing I cannot give. And therefore, I will be a witness to the Lord my God as one who has had his prayer answered. And I will declare this not only to the Lord my God, verse 2, in prayer, but I will declare this before the people of God in praise verse 14 and verse 18. Thus the paying of his vows is his response. He is not paying God back, but rather he is reflecting the truth found in verse 2, that he will continue to thank God. This is what it is to be a faithful witness. This is what it is to have a faithful practice in your Christian life. And so all of God's people are now encouraged to participate in the love shown to one person because it is a community, a covenantal truth. And let me conclude. We worship the trying God of Scripture, which we hear often, and we have been brought into a covenant that God has made with us, and we ought to recognize that this covenant, though it's not private, it involves God's people, 
It is not private to the extent or to the exclusion that God overlooks the individual. We do not want to rob God of his ability to treat you with personal care. As though to say, well, I'm just God's covenantal people. That is true. But God has the way and the will to treat you as an individual within his community. He is able to distinguish the difference between the bunch of grapes that live, the bag of marbles that are out in the world, all individual rolling around, bumping into each other, and the bunch of grapes that the church is defined as, or my illustration of. You are part of many, but you are your own person. And this is what the psalmist recognizes here that not only am I going to do this in the presence of all of God's people because I belong to the covenant, this is personal to me because of what God has done for me. I will witness this to everyone else, but I, that witness will not be to the exclusion of me recognizing what God has done for me as an individual. And so the Lord hans, answers his prayer and therefore is an encouragement that the Lord will answer our prayer in the presence of his people. And this is why the Lord, uh, why the man pays his vows before the Lord in the presence of all his uh, people. So last week we saw quite clearly that God is faithful to the end with his covenant people. But what we see here this week is that God is able to treat each person within his covenant with individual care specifically and therefore the idea that because God has done that over here there's nothing left for me here that because God has done that for them he must have run out of blessings for me here that's just not true but so often we can think that that when God gave blessings that he suddenly got to me and ran out no you are you are thinking covenantally but you're not thinking individually God is both covenantal in that he blesses his people at large and he is both individual in that he treats you as the person that you are made in his image. And so remember as we sort of go from here uh, this morning into the Lord's table, you belong to Christ Jesus. Your demonstration of love for Christ this morning is a reflection of his life for you but it is never at the expense of the individual. God has demonstrated his love for you. He has demonstrated his love for us because we belong to Christ Jesus. And this is why we, this morning, can pay our vows and give our praise to God in the presence of his people. Amen. Let me pray before we sing. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we thank you, Father God, that you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know our strengths, you know our weaknesses. And we are able to come to you personally, individually, and you are able to meet every single one of our needs. And I ask, Father God, you do so. In Jesus' name, amen.